Amen. You may be seated, and welcome to this Labor Day weekend, and yeah, the summer is over. You can feel the coolness in the air, and that's probably because you're opening your Bibles to Psalm 96, and just fan it a little bit more, and you'll get a little bit extra air. Psalm 96, and this incredible psalm, Sing to the Lord. Well, David already mentioned it, but I'd be remiss not to mention the fact that football is descending upon us. For many, it's a new season, and that new season brings new hope, great anticipation, and high, if not unrealistic, expectations. In fact, the Cardinals fall into that camp. They have a new coach, Cliff Kingsbury, new to the NFL, never had a winning record, And yet, he is in charge of our football team, yet we are excited. We have a new quarterback. He was taken first in the draft, Kyler Murray. He pretty much breaks all records for shortness as a quarterback, yet he is tough and he is good, so we're excited to watch him. We have a new offensive scheme that has been yet unseen in the NFL. And then there's this old man. Larry Fitzgerald, and many of you probably would love to see him win a ring. Now, if they have a good year, people are going to be excited. They will be, they'll be celebrating, and if Kyler Murray makes an incredible play, you're going to see what I saw David Gannon doing last night, and that's his arms going up as he saw Auburn getting beat until they won, and then he was like this. But what happens is when there's a great play in football, people celebrate. They're excited. They are fired up. They'll be talking about it on Monday. They'll be telling everybody who's ready to listen about what they've experienced. How much more should that be for the creator of the universe? The king of kings and the lord of lords. The author of life. Listen, when you are excited, when you believe something, you want to tell somebody. It's if it's, if it is if you can't help yourself. That's what Christian followers, that's what Christ followers should be like. But are we? Here's the point of this message today. If you're taking notes, you can write this down. Right worship of the Lord leads to right worship, or leads to right right witness to the Lord and for the Lord. Right worship of the Lord leads to right witness for the Lord. And that's what we see in Psalm 96. Follow along as I read this passage. Oh, sing to the Lord a new song. Sing to the Lord all the earth. Sing to the Lord, bless his name. Tell of his salvation from day to day. Declare his glory among the nations, his marvelous works among all the peoples. For great is the Lord and greatly to be praised. He is to be feared above all gods, for all the gods of the peoples are worthless idols. But the Lord made the heavens. Splendor and majesty are, are, uh, are before him. Strength and beauty are in his sanctuary. Ascribe to the Lord, O families of the peoples. Ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord the glory due his name. Bring an offering and come into his courts. 
Worship the Lord in splendor of holiness. Tremble before him all the earth. Say among the nations, the Lord reigns. Yes, the world is established. It shall never be moved. He will judge the peoples with equity. Let the heavens be glad and let the earth rejoice. Let the sea roar and all that fills it. Let the field exult and everything in it. Then shall all the trees of the forest sing for joy before the Lord. For he comes. For he comes to judge the earth. He will judge the world in righteousness and the peoples in his faithfulness. When you read this, you see three imperatives. Three commands. Here's the first one. Sing to the Lord. The first imperative is to sing to the Lord. In fact, right off the bat, we see the word sing to the Lord three different times. It's, it's, it's for emphasis. The, the, the writer is wanting us to do something specific, and it is to sing to the Lord. Now, this is a psalm that celebrates the kingship of the Lord. And it celebrates the kingship or the, the anticipation of his coming to restore the earth. In fact, one commentator said it's a, it's a psalm that throbs with the hope of the Lord's coming. And we'll talk about that in a minute. Sing to the Lord. Note the object and the direction of their song. It's not just to any God. It's to the Lord. Notice that Lord is capitalized. Whenever you see that, it's God's covenant name. It's Yahweh. Sing to the Lord. Sing to Yahweh. Now, there's times when we sing about God. But this, we're called to sing to him. Well, what are we to sing? We're to sing a new song. Now, that doesn't always mean that we sing a song that's never been sung before. But it means, in many instances, to sing a song in response to a fresh experience of God's grace. It can mean a new song, something that's never been sung before. But it can also mean that there's a new experience of God's grace. And so, as a result, we sing. We sing a new song as we see what God is doing. They're singing of a new thing. Now, notice who is called to sing. And this is really important. It says, sing to the Lord a new song. Sing to the Lord, who? All the earth. This isn't just for God's people. This is for everyone. So implied in that is that we are to be about the Lord so other people can know the Lord, so other people can sing about the Lord. Sing to the Lord, all the earth. fact is, though, even though they don't know the Lord personally, they know that he exists. And we know that from Psalm 19. Psalm 19.1 speaks of the fact that the heavens declare his glory. The sky above proclaims his handiwork. I've quoted it many times, but let me put up uh, Romans chapter 1, verse 19 and 20. This speaks of those that are in their sin, that have never received Jesus Christ. Paul says, for what could be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made, so they are without excuse. 
You don't have to drive very far in Arizona just to see God's glory. If you're looking pretty hard, you can find it right here in Phoenix. You just open up your eyes and you see God's glory. God has revealed himself to all the earth through his creation. And so, they're without excuse. All the earth. Now, singing to the Lord was a privilege of just the Jews, but here, the Gentiles are invited to join in. Now, notice what verse 2 says. It says, sing to the Lord, bless his name, meaning praise him, sing praises to the Lord. We've just done that. When it says, sing to his, uh, bless his name, name, when it speaks of his name, it speaks of his character and his attributes, everything about God. So when you, when you, when we say, you know, in the name of, or in his name, it's everything that represents him. This is worship. In fact, this is vertical worship. It's vertical worship. It's a, it's a right view of God that causes your heart to sing to him. But notice now that the vertical moves to the horizontal. Psalm 96, verse 2. Sing to the Lord, bless his name, and then this. Tell of his salvation from day to day. So not only are we to sing, but once our hearts are moved by the greatness and goodness of God, we're called to tell of his salvation from day to day. We're to speak about it. What God has done. How he's changed my life. That word tell, it changes the direction of the focus from God until man. And here's the point. Worship leads to proclamation. Worship leads to proclamation. Right worship leads to right witness. When our hearts are full, when we truly comprehend who God is and what he has done, we want to tell someone. I go back to my opening illustration. The Cardinals have an incredible game. We're all hoping. Monday morning, we're wanting to tell somebody. Why? Because we've seen something great. Even though it's not eternal, it's just temporal. How much more, when we comprehend the greatness and the majesty of God, should we want to tell someone? Look at verse 3. Declare, not only tell, but declare his glory among the nations. When it says declare his glory, glory speaks of his magnitude, his significance, his majesty. This is missionary singing. This is worship. And worship drives mission. Worship drives mission. I'm not going to ask you to go there, but read Isaiah chapter 6 this week. King Uzziah died. God gives Isaiah a glimpse of God's glory. He falls down and he worships and, and, and the angels are worshiping. And then, then one of the seraphim takes a tong and, and goes to the altar and, and, and cleanses his lips. It speaks of salvation. And, and, and Isaiah hears the, the angel saying, who shall go for us? Who shall we send? And Isaiah can, can do nothing but say, here my Lord, send me. And then you see, go and tell. 
See, when his heart is changed, when he gets a glimpse of the glory of God and worship, worship leads to mission. This is a missionary psalm. And he says, tell it, tell of it every day. If the cards win the Super Bowl, you're going to tell people. If if the D-backs happen to make it to the World Series, you're going to tell somebody. If you see a great movie, if you go to a great play, if you eat at a great restaurant, you tell someone. He says, sing to the Lord. This is about the Lord. I get fired up about this because so often I'm not. I really just stepped back and I said, am I as excited about the Lord as everything else going on in my life? And sometimes I just have to step back and say, Lord, forgive me. How I've made an idol or I've worshipped other things other than you. He says, sing to the Lord. Tell of his salvation from day to day, not just one time. Declare his glory among the nations. So what are we to declare? First of all, declare his marvelous works. Look at verse 3 again. For his marvelous works among all the peoples. Speaks of his creation and his redemption. How the Lord has been redeeming man uh, through his son. Restoring the broken, the lost, those who are hurting, those who are afraid, those who are lonely, those who are in shame. He gives them a new life, a new heart, a new direction, a new future, and a hope. Sing to the Lord. I mean, when you think about the fact that we were dead in our trespasses and sins, following the prince of the power of this air, but God, being rich in mercy with the great love with which he loved us, he saved us. How could we not want to tell someone? Sing. Sing to the Lord. In fact, look at verse 5. The end of verse 5, it says, For the Lord made the heavens, splendor and majesty are before him. Strength and beauty are in his sanctuary. Speak of that. Sing of it. That's what we're to declare, but why are we to declare it? Look at verse 4. For great is the Lord, and greatly to be praised. For great is the Lord, and greatly to be praised. We can put that first point back up if you want. Unless we're having a problem with our screens. We may. Um, great is the Lord and greatly to be praised. He is great because he is the one true God. There is no other God. He is to be praised and he is to be feared Notice what it says. For great is the Lord and greatly to be praised. He is to be feared above all gods. Notice where it says all gods. Gods is in with a little g. And then he says this. For all the gods of the peoples are worthless idols. So all of a sudden he's making a distinction between the one true God and all other gods. All other idols. There is only one God worthy of worship. All the other gods are worthless. Now, you don't see it in the English, but in verse 5 where it says worthless idols, in the, in the Hebrew it's Elohim. God in the Hebrew is Elohim 
or excuse me, Elohim. So you have this, you have, it's almost like he's setting this contrast up between Elohim, worthless gods, and Elohim, the one true God. He's wanting you to see that there's, there's a dramatic difference. All others are counterfeit gods. A god, little g, is anything you put before the one true God. It could be your work. It could be your children, family, a relationship, your body, success, power, security, comfort. Now, are any of these in and of themselves bad? No. Unless they become the primary focus of your life. Unless they pull you away from serving, worshiping, and giving to the one true God. The first commandment says this, you shall have no other gods before me. In fact, if you don't understand the first God, you will, in the first commandment, you'll struggle with any of the other commandments. So often we think of idols as just trinkets. But an idol is when the human heart takes a good thing and makes it the ultimate thing. Listen to what Tim Keller in his book, uh, uh, Counterfeit God, says. He speaks of idols. He says, our hearts deify them as the center of our lives because we think they can give us significance and security, safety and fulfillment if we attain them. So we push the best things aside to get there. What the psalmist is trying to show us here is they're worthless. Don't worship them. Don't go after them. Listen to what Keller says about idols. He says, it is anything more important to you than God. Anything that absorbs your heart and imagination more than God. Anything you seek to give you what only God can give you. I think that's a really good understanding of idols. Let me say it again. It is anything more important to you than God. And this can be really subtle. Anything that absorbs your heart and imagination more than God. As you're sitting here, what might be the thing that you focus on more than anything else? That could be an idol. Anything you seek to give you what only God can give. He goes on to explain what a counterfeit God is in Keller in his book. And I'm going to just read it. I didn't put it up. It's just because it's, it's a little bit longer. But a counterfeit God is, I'll just put that up on the screen. A counterfeit God is anything so central and essential to your life that should you lose it, your life would feel hardly worth living. An idol has a such, control, such a controlling passion in, position in your heart that you can spend most of your passion and energy, your emotional and financial resources on it, without a second thought. It can be family, children, career, money, achievement, acclaim or saving face or social standing. It can be roman- a romantic relationship, peer approval, competence and skill, secure and comfortable circumstance, uh, a political or social cause, your morality and virtue, or even success in ministry. Ouch. An idol is whatever you look at and say in your heart of hearts. Quote, if I have that, then I'll feel like my life has meaning, 
then I'll know, then I'll know, uh, now have value, then I'll feel significant and secure, end quote. All of this is a form of worship. That's why the psalmist says, sing, sing. Here's the point. We're to sing to the Lord because he is the only one worthy to be praised and worshiped. That's the first imperative. Here's the second imperative. Give to the Lord. Sing to the Lord, give to the Lord. Look at verse 7. He says, ascribe to the Lord, O families of the peoples, ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord the glory due his name. Notice that word ascribe. Once again, it's in the imperative tense. It's a command three different times. What does ascribe mean? It means to give, to give credit to. It, it, it means to assign Just like we saw the word sing to the Lord three times, now we see ascribe to the Lord three times. He's trying to show us the importance of this, and it almost builds into a crescendo. And what is interesting about this, this is not only are God's people to ascribe to the Lord, but all the people. Look again at verse 7. It says, ascribe to the Lord, O families of the peoples. This speaks of everyone. We are summoned to get others to declare the glories of God. How do we do that? We call for their conversion. We share with them about Jesus Christ so they can join in declaring his glory, so they can join in ascribing to him glory and strength, the glory that is due his name. One of the reasons we come to church is so we can sing to the Lord, we can gather together, we can speak to one another, but it's so we can equip you to go out and ascribe glory to God. But then you get to verse 8, in the second part of verse 8, and there's something very shocking there. Notice what he says. Ascribe to the Lord the glory due his name, and then this. Bring an offering and come into his courts. This is an invitation, not to just the Jewish people, but to the nations. Now, what does he mean when he says into his courts? Into God's courts. Well, let me show you a, a graphic. This is a graphic of the, of the temple courts. This would be the, considered the temple mount with the temple right in the middle. And these are the, this, is, this is Solomon's portico behind here. This, this right here would be the, the, the temple courts. This is on this side of the wall would be the court of the Gentiles. The Gentiles could not cross this wall under penalty of death. And then you had the court of the women. And then inside here you had the court of the Jews. Let's look at the next graphic. And so again, you have the court of the Gentiles, the court of the women. You would go in here and you would have the court of the Jews. And then you would go in and have the court of the priests. And then you had the temple. And inside the temple you had the holy place. And then inside there you had the holy of holies, which represent the presence of God. And and so what he says here is come into the temple, come into the courts, bring an offering. This is an amazing thing. This was a call to break down the barriers. It's a picture of people coming to Yahweh from around the world. And we know that it's Jesus that did this. 
Ephesians chapter 2, verses 13 and 15 talks about that. Let me put it up on the screen. It says, um, but now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. You were far off. You were far off in the, in the, in the uh, court of the Gentiles. You've been brought near. How? By the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, speaking of Jesus, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. He's made us both one, both Jew and Gentile, believer and unbeliever. He is made into one man, a Christ follower. He's made us into one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in the place of two, so making peace. Let me just go back to that graphic real quick. When he says that, breaking down the dividing wall of hostility, the Gentiles would have immediately, the Jews would have known, this is the dividing wall of hostility. Because Gentiles could not go beyond that wall. And there was a lot of hostility between the Jews and the Gentiles. But Jesus, because of his blood, because of what he did on the cross, dying on the cross, taking the wrath that we deserved, he he broke down the dividing wall of hostility. And the two men have become one in Christ. I grew up Jewish. Most of you probably grew up Gentiles. We are one in Christ. That's an amazing thing. That is only because of what Jesus Christ did on the cross. So, we are to ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. We are to ascribe to the Lord the glory due His name. Bring an offering and come into His court. They are called to bring an offering. It's a gift. It's a present. It's a tribute. Let me ask you, how are you at that? Do you bring offerings to the Lord? Do you bring tributes to the Lord? Christ was a giver. He gave his life for us. Are you a giver? Do you give to the work of the Lord as a result of what Christ has given to you? Do you give back in a way that the New Testament prescribes? In a generous way, in a sacrificial way, in a joyful way, in a systematic way. That's how we as a church survive, is by people giving. They don't give it to us, they give it to the Lord so that we can do the Lord's work. Worship is not receiving, it is giving. That is worship. Give to the Lord. Give our worship. Give our praise. Give our hearts. Give our time. Give our treasure. Give our talents. It's not coming to see what I can get from the Lord, but it's what can I give. We're called to give. It's not just money. To give our hearts, to give our lives as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to Him. 
In fact, in verse 9 it says, Worship the Lord in splendor of holiness. Tremble before him all the earth. When it says worship, it's, a, it's literally to prostrate oneself, uh, um, prostrate oneself on the ground. It's the idea of bowing down. John MacArthur speaks of, of worship as this. He says, worship is all that we are reacting rightly to all that he is. Worship is all that we are reacting rightly to all that he is. The more we know him, the more we worship. I have written this down. Worship is a response of the heart gripped by the truth of the gospel. When I realize that 21 years ago, Jesus died on the cross in my place, his blood shed for my sin so that I could have eternal life. And no longer, because of my faith in Jesus, no longer am I facing eternity in hell, separated from God. But I'm now, I, I'm now assured of being a citizen of heaven. That should cause my heart to worship. The more I understand that, the more I comprehend that, the more that should move me. To sing to the Lord. To give to the Lord. And third, to tell of the Lord. To tell of the Lord. Look at verse 10. Say to the nations, say among the nations, the Lord reigns. That word say, it's the third in a series of speak up. You see it in verse, you see it in verse 2, sing. Uh, excuse me, tell. Verse 3, declare. Now again in verse 10, say. So you see sing, sing, sing. And then you see ascribe, ascribe, ascribe. And then you see tell, declare, say. We are to open our mouths and we are to say. What are we to say? The Lord reigns. He's king. He's sovereign. Now let me ask you, is that politically correct? Not at all. But does that change its truth? Not at all. Whether people believe it or not, the Lord reigns. He is Lord. He is king. He is sovereign. It's who he is. And the fact is, what the psalmist is trying to show us is our worship. And our giving to the Lord becomes the impetus for mission. When we sing to the Lord, when we understand the Lord, we sing and we tell others. So when you have a right reverence of God, a right worship of God, you tell of His salvation. You, you declare His glory. You speak of his marvelous works. You, you, you say among those who don't know him, our God reigns. My fear is, the further we get from the time of our salvation, the less we talk about it. The less we're overwhelmed by it. The less it rocks us. So why is this so important? Well, he tells us in this passage, because the Lord is coming to judge the earth. The Lord is coming again. 
He makes it very clear. Say among the nations, the Lord reigns. Yes, the world is established. It shall never be moved. He will judge the peoples with equity. It's speaking of the fact that the Lord is going to return and he is going to judge with equity. He's going to separate the sheep from the goats, the wheat from the tares, the believers from the non-believers. Let the heavens be, and then he he gets into this. It's kind of interesting. You, You see nature personified here. He says, let the heavens be glad and let the earth rejoice. Let the sea roar and all that fills it. Let the field exult and everything in it. Then shall all the trees of the forest sing for joy before the Lord. Why? For he comes. For he comes to judge the earth. He will judge the world in righteousness and the peoples in his faithfulness. This is speaking of the second advent. The first advent, the first coming of Christ was 2,000 years ago when when Jesus came as a suffering servant, as the lamb to take away the sin of the world. But he's coming again to rule and reign as a conquering king. Now, we can go about our lives sometimes and not really be impacted by that. But then something happens like it's just happened yesterday and today. You see the tragedy in Midland and Odessa. I think seven people dead now. Like that. Those people weren't expecting that. Now, the people in the Bahamas... You know, they weren't expecting 220-mile-an-hour winds. Lots of devastation. And the fact is, we have to live in light of the Lord's return. He is coming again. That's why we're starting this new series next week um, called Eternal Perspectives, Living in Light of Eternity. Because sometimes I, I don't think that we do live in light of eternity, but this psalmist is wanting us to know, listen, the Lord is going to return, and you better be ready The fact is, there's one thing you cannot do after you die. You can't place your faith in Jesus. You must do it before you die. You can only receive Christ this side of eternity. So the question becomes, when is Jesus returning? Soon. How soon? I don't know, but it's soon. In fact, today we're a day closer than we were yesterday. And that's why it's so important that our our hearts and our minds are open to what is going on. That's why it's so important that we tell of the Lord, we say to people, the Lord reigns. And the fact is, and this this stepped on my toes when I wrote this down, your witness may say something about your worship. Your witness may say something about your worship. When was the last time you spoke of God's salvation, his glory, his reign to someone? The fact is the statistics aren't good. Let me put up a chart for you. This was done by Lifeway Lifeway, uh, Research. And they asked the question in the past six months about how many times have you personally shared with someone how to become a Christian. And now this was asked to Protestant churchgoers. 61% said zero times. 
And my guess is it's probably less than that. We're called to tell, to say, to declare. Look at this next one. In the past six months, how many times have you personally invited an church person to attend church? Here comes the monsoon. 48% said zero times. Do you know in that same year that they did this study that a survey was done, another survey that said that 80%, and it's lower now, but at the same time they did this, 80% of the people when asked if they would go to church with a friend when invited said yes, they would go. 80%. But yet most people didn't invite anybody that year. The fact is, we are called to tell of the Lord. So I want to just review with you real quick. What do we tell them? Sometimes people say, like, what, do you, what do I say to somebody? Great question. Well, first of all, and I think it's all, you always start with the holiness of God. Speak of the holiness of God. Speak about God. He, he's, he's, he's creator. He's, he's sustainer. He's, he's the king of kings and the Lord of lords. He is holy, meaning that he cannot allow sin into heaven. But then speak of the sinfulness of man. That, that, that God, that, that um, man fell in the garden, that we are all sinners and our sin has separated us from a holy God. Speak of that. Romans chapter 3, verse 10. We've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. There is none righteous, no, not one. Let them know about, about uh, um, uh, uh, Romans 6, 23. For the wages of sin is death. But the gift of God is, is eternal life in, in Jesus Christ. And then third, the sufficiency of Christ. That Christ died on the cross for a purpose. He went to the cross. He laid down his life. And God was satisfied with his sacrifice on the cross so we could have eternal life. Uh, Acts 4.12 says, There is no other name under heaven by which we must be saved. Jesus says in John 14.6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except by me. John 3.16 says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son that whoever should believe in him should not perish but have eternal life. Tell them about the sufficiency of Christ, but then tell them about the necessity of faith. Without faith, it is impossible to please him. Hebrews chapter 11. By faith, if we confess with our mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in our hearts that God raised him from the dead, we will be saved. Romans 10, 9. And then speak of the urgency of eternity. It's coming. The urgency of eternity. The urgency of eternity. We hear you, Lord. Now would be a good time to know that you know that you know, right? Just because this place was built 60 years ago. Listen, this is not some formula. We see over and over and over again in the Bible that the Lord's returning. We need to sing to the Lord. We need to, we need to give to the Lord. We need to tell of the Lord. When you really understand what God did to purchase our salvation, to, return, to, to, to redeem us from eternal torment, how he is full of grace and love and mercy and forgiveness and care, when your heart is gripped by the truth of the gospel, you can't help but to sing to the Lord, to give to the Lord, and tell of the Lord 
The fact is, right worship of the Lord leads to right witness for the Lord. I'm going to ask our worship team to come up here. And I want to close with a quote by John Piper. I'm not going to put it up for you because I forgot to add it into the slides. But he says this. Why would the psalmist begin a psalm about missions by commanding his people to sing? You cannot summon the nations to sing if you're not singing. And we are summoning the nations to sing. To sing to the Lord. To give to the Lord. To tell of the Lord. Father, we thank you for these these incredible truths, but also these commands. And Father, I pray no one would feel condemned by this message, but they would maybe feel convicted. As I have felt, we know that right conviction leads to right correction. And right correction moves us in a way that would bring you glory. So Lord, I pray you would move us now that we would sing. We would sing from our hearts. We would give from our hearts. We would tell from our hearts. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.